of the ministries and the materials and the lunch as well. Uh, so the, the cost to register for that is $20 a person. And uh, we are, as a church, trying to, to uh, pull together child care for it as well. So if that's a limiting factor in terms of you and your spouse being able to attend, uh, then please let us know so that we can uh, include you in the, the child care efforts for that, uh, that morning. So um, again, July 6th, which is a Saturday from 9 to 3, and uh, a Praying Life seminar. Again, it's one of the um, if you've ever read the book, you kind of know some of the materials already, but it's one of the most impactful things that I've ever read. And particularly when it comes to prayer, it's really revolutionized the way that I see it. Um, so we hope that you can come. Um, kids, if you're not in the back already at the tables uh, for the craft, you, can, you guys can go ahead and head back there. I think most of them are back there. Uh, it feels like it, yeah. <laughs> uh, so they're going to be uh, kind of doing a... a a, a little craft back there while I talk, which my son Ethan was really, really relieved about because he heard that he was going to be upstairs this morning and his response was, oh no, not a sermon. And uh, yeah, I say you're probably not the only one that feels that way, but that's what we got this morning. Um, we, we are, we're doing a series in the book of Hebrews called Greater. Uh, and the, the book of Hebrews, if you haven't been with us, is a book that's written to uh, discouraged, downcast, fearful, doubting Christians. It, it, a community of people who are ready to throw in the towel on their relationship with Jesus, to go back to uh, their Judaism, the, back to the, their way of life that they used to live before, because to follow Jesus is becoming increasingly difficult for them. And so we, we've been looking at all the ways that Hebrews talks about Jesus as being the greater way. The fact that if, if you look at him, if you fix your eyes on him, if you, if you, if you uh, understand who he is and what he's done, then you'll realize that to press forward with him may be harder, but it is in fact greater. It will lead to a greater life. It will gr- lead to a greater impact in the world. It will lead to greater rest greater uh, ability to navigate through struggles and trials. And, and so this morning we're going to be looking at how Jesus is the greater advocate. And we're going to be in Hebrews 7, and I'm going to read from verses 18 to 27. And it says this, The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, the one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. 
He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Um, as, as I mentioned already, uh, Hebrews is written to struggling and discouraged people. And the, the author who uh, is anonymous uh, is trying to um, encourage them. And he says to them, essentially, one of the most encouraging things that you could possibly realize about this Jesus is that he is an advocate. Now, what does it mean to be uh, an advocate? Apparently, it's very important for us to know that. Um, Mandy and I, as we've been part of the foster care system and and, uh, getting more acquainted with the, the, um, the, the trial system and the judicial system in the state of New Jersey, uh, have realized that one of the things that sometimes happens within the foster system is that you get um, someone appointed to you as a special advocate. And apparently this doesn't happen very often, but if, you, if you're lucky enough to get someone, they're called a CASA worker, they're a court-appointed special advocate. And what that person's job is, is to be a neutral third party who comes in and says, my sole responsibility is to represent the interests of the child in this case. So no matter what anybody else says, I'm looking solely at the child and I'm saying what needs to be done on behalf of this little boy or little girl to give them the best possible future uh, so that they can live a f- fulfilling and meaningful life. And so, and they bring, they, they suggest resources and they, 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 they speak on behalf of, of the person. And, and what Hebrews is saying is we have someone like that. Every single one of us. So, so we're going to look at this. What does it mean to be an advocate? And why do we need an advocate? So we're going to ask a, a couple questions of the, the text this morning. Why do we need an advocate? How is Jesus the advocate that we need? And what difference does it make if we make him our advocate? All right, so let's start. Why do we need one? Um, the passage starts out and says that the former regulation is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it starts out by saying all of us are, are, are created to, to, to have a connection, to, to draw near to God, to be in close relationship with Him, and that there were former ways to do that that involved temples and priests and sacrifices and rituals. But now a better hope has arrived. There's a better priest. There's a better way. There's a greater way. Now, here, here's the trouble with when we, we talk about all this stuff, is that in 21st century America, the word priest uh, to you means something different than it did to the writer of Hebrews. And so, so you know, words have uh, particular meanings, and those meanings change over time. And so that word priest has changed over time, and you attach a particular meaning to it, which is probably unhelpful when it comes to what we're actually looking at. So uh, for that reason, we have to look at what it means to be a priest and kind of dig down a little bit past the, the, the potential things that we might think it means. And it's helpful to look at verse 25 to do that. So if you look at verse 25, it says, about Jesus, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And that word intercede is key 
Because to intercede for someone isn't just a vague religious term. It, it has a legal meaning as well. And I already mentioned the, 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 the entire um, CASA deal. But the, the, and that kind of gets more at the, the meaning that Hebrews is trying to get at when it talks about Jesus as being a priest. That, that we have a special advocate, a representative, uh, as if you were on trial. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever been on trial before. Um, the closest I've ever come is uh, when I got into a, a pretty serious car accident and I was uh, 100% completely at fault. I was in college. I was kind of going back from my Thanksgiving uh, break and I was headed back to the campus and along the way, I made a stupid decision and made a turn that I wasn't supposed to make and wasn't paying attention to the things that were happening around me. And I, I ran head-on, probably 45 miles an hour at least, uh, to another car that was coming in the opposite direction. Now, um, after that happened, uh, well after, but afterwards, um, we got a letter in the mail that said that I needed to appear at a hearing to, to state my case because I was being sued for that accident and the damages and everything that went along with it. Now, here's the thing about that. So, so when I went to, to that hearing, which is, again, the closest I got to a trial, um, I went with a representative. I went with a lawyer, right? And that lawyer, that representative, uh, pleaded my case on my behalf. And I, I actually had two representatives because my dad went along with me because he wouldn't let me go alone. And he said, no, 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 I'm going to be there. I want to I say something. I want to represent you as well. And so the two of them were my representatives. Now, things went pretty well in terms of the, 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 the case that, that I was in. And, um, but here's the thing I, I found out. Uh, even though that was the trial that really mattered, do you know the trial that I cared more about? It was the trial of walking back onto my college campus after having this accident and totaled my car when I had to go back to my friends and say, I no longer have a vehicle to drive you to places. And I remember distinctly walking back onto the college campus, going up past the dining hall to my dorm room and thinking to myself, it was the opinions of my classmates and my friends that mattered most to, to me. It, it was the, the trial of who they thought that I was that actually uh, was more grievous and, and more at risk than whatever damages I would have to pay in any kind of legal trial. Now, why, why was that the case? It was because for the first several months of, of my college career, I was one of the very few freshmen that got a driver's permit to have my car on campus. And because I was one of those few individuals, I was a guy who could get you places. Uh, and I had a car, and I was a good driver. And, I, so we, and we were in, in Philadelphia, so I could drive you into the city, and we could go to all the places that people would want to go. And that, in a sense, put me at the center of a social circle. And the trial that I was most concerned about, having had to take the train back to school, was who will I now be? In the eyes of my friends, in the eyes of my classmates, 
what will my identity be? See, all of us live our life as if we're on trial. And whether or not you've been in a legal proceeding or not, every single one of us is, is in a trial where we are trying to construct for ourselves a case to make before other people. And, and we walk through life caring very much about people's verdicts of who we are. Do they think I'm a good person or a bad person? Do they think I'm beautiful or ugly? Do they think I'm a good dad or a bad dad? Do they think I'm a good worker and worthy of being in this office environment? Or do they think that I'm a bad worker and I shouldn't be here? Am I a good teacher or a bad teacher? All of us care. And here's the thing. You can't not care. All of us care. All of us live essentially for the verdict of someone outside of us to tell us that we're okay. And therefore, here's what happens. We live our entire lives essentially trying to prove ourselves. We try to prove ourselves. We want to be, we want to sort of live up to the the ideas and the expectations of other people. To be the good driver among the group that can get you places. What do you attach your identity to? What, what, what trial do you most want to succeed in that will give you your sense of who you are? That's the question. And now the Bible says that underneath all of those efforts to get verdicts from other people, to, to be seen as good and virtuous and beautiful and successful... All of those needs to get a good verdict is actually a replacement for us trying to get a good verdict from the Lord of the universe. In a sense, what the Bible says is there is a trial and there is an ultimate judge and there is an ultimate jury and if we don't get our our verdict of goodness from that courtroom, we will seek it from every other courtroom and every other person that we come in contact with. See, in the case of my accident, there was a court that mattered, but there was another court that I cared more about. And what the Bible says to us continuously is, there's a court that matters, and we should care about that courtroom more than every other one. And the real question is, when it comes to that most critical, most crucial courtroom, are you going to go in alone, or are you going to go into it with an advocate? See, um, how many of you like um, courtroom dramas, like on TV? Like procedurals and cop dramas? And um, I'm not among you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so I, 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 I really, um, I, I don't, maybe, maybe it's because growing up I was exposed to them a lot and I like had to watch them because we had one TV. Um, but man, I didn't like those at all. Um, but here's one thing I do remember from them, um, is every once in a while you would have a, a courtroom drama and there'd be somebody who says, you know what, I'm going to represent myself, right? I'm, I'm going to make a case for myself. I don't need no lawyer. I'm going to do it myself. And then they stand up before the court and then every once in a while, like that person, just based on their own grit and determination, ends up winning their case. 
Now, I, I don't know if you ever talked to a real lawyer or not, but that never happens <laughs> in real life. It never happens. In fact, if real attorneys know that if you try to be your own advocate in a court of law, you're doomed. You're done for. And Hebrews says that if you go into the courtroom of God's justice alone, if you go essentially and try to argue your own case, what does that sound like? I'm a good dad. I'm a good mom. I'm a good husband. I'm a good employee. I'm better than the last guy who was in this court. Then you're doomed. That's the bad news. But the good news is you don't have to go alone. That Jesus is the advocate that you need. That essentially, if you, if you go in without an advocate, then the defense will never rest and you will constantly need to argue the case for your own goodness. But if Jesus is your advocate, then you have the opportunity to rest. Now, why, why is Jesus the advocate that we need? Well, let's look at verses 24 and 25. It says, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, that again, that word intercede is um, to go on behalf of another. Now, if you were in trouble with the law and you have an intercessor, you have an advocate who goes in you, goes in for you, then here's what happens. Um, you get all the benefits of your advocate. Right? Now, if you try to go in alone, um, you have to know the legal system. You, you have to know the judge and their preferences and determinations from the past. You, know, you have to know the, the procedures of that courtroom. You have to know which case law to, to, to access and which ones not to. And, and chances are you don't have access to all that information, right? And that's the whole reason you get an advocate is because your advocate does. And the, the advocate appears on your behalf. Now, now, when you have an advocate in court, here's what happens. The only person that the courtroom sees is them and not you. I was on a, a jury, I was picked for jury duty one time uh, on my birthday. This happened a couple years ago. And I complained about it for weeks. If you were around at that point, you knew it because I made you guys miserable because I was miserable. And the fact that I got picked for jury duty and had to go in on my birthday. And not only did I have to go in, but I got picked for a jury and had to serve for like three or four days after my birthday. It was terrible. You don't even know. Uh, <laughs> now, so I, I was on the jury for, for a civil case uh, over a car accident, which was the biggest, you know, I told them that I had an accident before and they didn't care. So uh, I still had to serve. So I'm on the jury and, and um, the, the plaintiff is there with uh, that person's uh, lawyer. And then on, de- on the defense side, the defendant was never there. She, she never came to any of the proceedings, any of the trials. And at first I thought that was a really weird thing until her lawyer started to talk. And I realized that her lawyer was brilliant. And he had a rock-solid case. 
And, and he was citing things left and right, and the way that he interviewed people and the depositions was amazing. And he brought out all these different uh you know, streams of thought and, you, and kind of put them all together in the final arguments. And, and, and by the time we got into the jury room, we were like, does it matter that she didn't come? I mean, he made such a good case for her. How can we say no? And that's what happens when you have an advocate. You look like your advocate before the court. If your advocate's it's your advocate's performance, not yours, that will make or break you. If your advocate is eloquent, so are you. If your advocate is brilliant, so are you. If he knows people in the courtroom, so do you. In other words, all the benefits of that person's abilities are transferred to you. If he wins, you win. Why? Because when you have an advocate, your advocate is your substitute. He applies his access and his ability and you get all the benefits. And amazingly, what Hebrews says is that this is what it means to be a Christian. See, so many people think that what it means to be a Christian is to have Jesus as your example. is to try your best to live a life that looks like Jesus. It's to to say, well, I pray to Jesus and I ask Him for help and I try to live like Him. I try to love my neighbor as best as I can, except for that one. And uh, I try to go to church like, you know, two Sundays out of four. And I, I try to read my Bible. I do all these things. If that's what you think it means to be a Christian, here's what's happening. You're appearing in court alone. You're being your own advocate. And the Bible is saying the same thing as what a real attorney would tell you. You're in for a disaster. You're completely doomed and you will be completely enslaved to arguing your case again and again and again and again before the courtroom of God. And it will never be enough. You can never pray enough to justify yourself. You can never attend church enough to to get the, the good and well done from God. You can never... Read your Bible enough to say, now I've achieved enough to outweigh the bad things that I've done. It'll never be enough. But it doesn't have to be enough. To be a Christian means that you get to be in Christ. You get to be found in Him. You get to throw away your attempts to have a record of yourself to cling to Jesus' record. Paul illustrates this perfectly in Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. You remember Paul's credentials? He's like the rock star of rock stars in terms of religious accomplishments, and he outlines all of those things for the Philippian church. And then he goes on to say this, Yet I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider my record garbage. That I may gain Christ and what? Be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. You see what he's saying there? I don't need the record because I've got His record. I don't need to be eloquent because I've got His eloquence. I don't need to be brilliant because I've got His brilliance. Everything that He has is transferred to me. See, so many people who would consider themselves Christians consider themselves Christians because of what they do. 
But unless you have Jesus as your advocate, you're appearing alone. Jesus is the ultimate advocate. He stands as your representative before the ultimate throne, at the ultimate trial, before the ultimate king. Now, I I don't know if you think that's good news or not. For several years, I wasn't so sure. And I think my my one and only kind of bump against the law um, skewed my thinking of what it means for Jesus to be my advocate. Because I mentioned that I went to this hearing, right, and that I had a lawyer and I had my dad. And uh, we go into this proceeding and we're talking about the accident and what happened and the mistakes that I made, and I was fully honest about those things. And, and um, it got to the point where um, at the very end, uh, they said if, if anybody else would like to make any statements that we could put on record, you're free to do so now. And my dad said, yes, I would like to make a statement. <laughs> and he stands up. We're all sitting at a table. He stands up. And um, he's, like, convicted, you know? Like, he gets really passionate about things sometimes, especially when it comes to his kids. And there were several times growing up where, like, we would get, like, pushed down by a bull, and he's like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to teach them a lesson. You know, I mean, he would just get really passionate for us. And, um, you know, he was a good dad. And uh, so so he gets really passionate in this moment, and he stands up. And here, here, you can, can you guess what he says? He essentially says something along the lines of, look, my son is a good kid. And he tries his best in school. And he was on his way back to college. And he, you know, he, he wants to, 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 to make something of his life. And yeah, he made a mistake, but it's his, it's his first ding on his record. I mean, have a little mercy here. It was an accident, you know? He's going to try really hard. He's done really well ever since then. Like, just give him mercy for me, right? Now, Here's why I think sometimes when we think of Jesus as an advocate, it's not as helpful as we might realize. Is because we kind of think Jesus does the same thing that my dad did. That, that he comes before the Father and he says, oh, yeah, I know he did it again. Um, I, know, I know he's promised to change and he's doing it again anyways, but please, just give him another chance. Get, you know, for my sake. He means well. I, I know he can do it, Your Honor. I mean, just, just give him another try. And you owe me, right? I, I went to earth. I, I went to the cross for you. I mean, don't forget that. You, uh, you know. So give him mercy. And then the Father, you know, after hearing this sob story from Jesus, goes, ah, oh, All right, but don't let it happen again, right? Now, why is this not comforting? Because it means at some point, if Jesus is just spinning the truth to try to squeeze mercy out of God, how long can he really keep that up before God finally says, you know what, I'm done? I mean, this Jay guy, he's a pastor now. He should know better. And yet he's still doing the same things he was when he was 21. I mean, come on, Jesus. Enough's enough. That's not how Jesus is an advocate for you. Or for me, thankfully. Do you know, do you know what kind of cur- uh, attorney never loses a case? The kind with a rock-solid case. 
the, 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 with the slam dunk argument that is completely irrefusable. You cannot get around it. It's airtight. And Hebrews says that when Jesus stands before the court on your behalf, he's not just asking to squeeze a little bit more mercy out of God. Do you know what he's asking for? Verse 27 says that unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for sins, for their sins, once for all when he offered himself. Jesus doesn't go into the courtroom on your behalf and say, please, you know, just, just give him one more chance. He goes into the courtroom and he says, Father, I demand justice. My friends, the ones who have come to me so that I can be their advocate, they're guilty. But I have made the necessary payment for their guilt. I would like to offer Exhibit A, my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of their sins. And because their guilt has already been paid, it would be unjust for you to demand two payments for the same debt. Therefore, because payment is made, I'm not asking you for mercy on their behalf. I'm asking you for justice. See, the debt's paid. And the trial is over. You no longer need to represent yourself. The defense has rested. And the trial is done. And so who do you need to prove yourself to anymore? Who, who Who are you arguing with anymore? Nobody. You don't need to prove that you're a good mother, you're a good father, that you love your parents, or that you try your best, or that you work harder than other people. Why? Because even if you did, were able to prove those things, how long will it be satisfying to you before the next thing comes along and you realize you have to defend yourself again? See, Paul says, when you compare all of that arguing to what you have in Christ, it's garbage by comparison. It's garbage, so throw it out. You don't need it anymore. One of the the very first um, verse that I memorized as a new Christian was 1 John 1, 9. And um, so I've known this verse by heart for the last 18 years. And I was reading it again this week, and it was the very first time I realized that it didn't say what I thought it said. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you know what it doesn't say? That he is faithful and merciful. I never caught that before. He's not just merciful. He's just. And it's saying... Because Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place, then he's changed our standing before, for, forever, which now means that the justice of God demands that you get forgiveness. The fact that God is a good and faithful judge means that when you ask for forgiveness, you get it every time. Not because God is being merciful to you this time, but He's not going to be next time. It's because God has justly dealt with every single sin. So why not confess them? See, that's good news, isn't it? 
There's even better news. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of the high priest. I tried to look one up this week, and they're all really hokey. Uh, they just don't do it justice. And, and so I was going to show one to you, but it, it's better if I just describe it. Um, high priests were adorned in wealth. They weren't wealthy people themselves. They kind of lived off the generosity of other people. But when the high priest would go into the temple, he was covered in jewels and gold, shining from head to toe. And when he went into the whole place, he, he wore a covering called an ephod. And that ephod's, uh, if you were to total up the, the, the wealth of that garment, it would be incredible. Now, why would God require the high priest to do that? I think one of the reasons is because um, the, the high priest would hold a candle as he went into the holy place. And all it would take is one candle, and that priest would shine like the sun. I mean, he would just be a, a, a glorious reflection and take that one little flickering flame and just be radiant with beauty. Now, do you know what it means for Jesus to be your high priest? It means if you're in Christ, you're not just forgiven of your sins. It, it, God doesn't just like wash you down with a hose and go, well, I guess that's good enough. You know? Like, you're still not the most beautiful thing in the world, but at least you're not dirty anymore. He doesn't do that. When you're in Christ, when He's your high priest, it means you look like the high priest. It means when the Father looks at you, when He sees His high priest come into His most holy place, all He sees when He looks at you is the radiance of His Son. He sees someone who's clothed in immense wealth, not because you earned it yourself, but because it was transferred to you. And your Father sees you as beautiful beyond description. Has that ever sunk in for you? Those of you at the front, I think it has. Those of you at the back, you're like, I'm hearing two different things right now. Maybe this would be the one day where everybody just funnels down to the front. No, no. <laughs> Has it sunk in? You're, you're not just forgiven before the Father. You're radiant in His sight. When He sees you coming to the throne of grace, He weeps with joy because He sees His most beautiful child. He sees someone who's clothed in Christ. And that's amazing. And that should change everything about the way that you see yourself, you see your God, you see other people. So what difference does it make? I just want to briefly touch on three things. There's a a difference that it makes in terms of your vertical relationship to God. There's a difference it makes in terms of your internal view of yourself. And there's a difference that it makes in terms of your external relationship to other people. You know what it does to your relationship to God? When you know that Jesus is your advocate, it completely, completely removes guilt. You cannot be guilty and believing that Jesus is your advocate at the same time. You can't. See, it, and aren't there moments, so this, is just, this happens to me, maybe it happens to you too, where you're walking through life, and this could happen once a day or once a week or maybe several times a day, when a voice pops up in your head and starts to accuse you of the sins that you've committed. 
It starts to say things to you like, you failure. People think that you're a good dad. You're not. People think that you're a good employee. You're not. And you, and you start to feel this weight of guilt over you that, that you're not measuring up. And, you, and at that moment in time, what's your natural disposition to begin to do? It's to start to defend yourself, isn't it? It's to start to say, you know what? I, I'm, I'm better than you think I am. How about instead, the next time that happens to you, Instead of trying to be your own advocate, you remember like a, a verse like Romans 8.33 that says this, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Then who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Here's a thought. The next time that voice comes in again and starts to accuse you of things, what if you respond not by defensiveness? What if you respond by saying, you know, I'm sorry, if you want anything to say to me, you need to talk to my representative. You can't speak to me. I have an attorney. I have an advocate. He represents me in all cases of guilt and justice. And if you want anything to do with me, you go and talk to him instead of me. I'm thinking that might change your day. When you sin, when when you feel the weight, do you you feel this need to hide? Do you feel this need to minimize what you've done by comparing it to other people? Do you feel the need to remain in a place of shame for hours, if not days? You don't need to. Because you have a better advocate. You have someone who's already marched into that courtroom and dealt with that sin. And so now you get nothing but the grace of God. And so yeah, when you fail again, which you will, instead of beating yourself up for days or listening to that voice for hours, you know what you can do? You can run to the throne of grace and find help in your time of need. Because you have someone who's offered himself once and for all for you. Free. From guilt forever. Wouldn't that be amazing? You know the other thing it gives you? Internally it gives you a confidence and it removes defensiveness. You remember how I said, if you're your own advocate, then basically you're on this hamster wheel where you have to defend yourself forever. You know what happens when you need to defend yourself forever? You become defensive. (laughs) To the point where if someone even criticizes just a little thing about you, you fly off the handle. Why is that? It's because you're defensive. Why are you defensive? Because you, need to be, you, need, you feel the need to defend yourself. Why do you feel the need to defend yourself? Because you're being your own advocate. See, people who understand that Jesus is their advocate are the least offensive people on planet Earth. Because even if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I don't like this about you. I don't think you're right. I, you know, I, I, do you realize this about you and they, they criticize you? You know what your response should be? You have no idea how bad I am. I'm that and ten times more. 
I mean, the, the depths of depravity in my own heart know no bounds. I'm full of unbelief and jealousy and suspicion and superiority and frailty and dishonesty. I'm full of it. And yet, in spite of all that stuff, I have an advocate who's going to the throne of grace and I have a Father who loves me and cherishes me and sees me as beautiful even though I'm not. Isn't that amazing? See, if you know that, then you're not defensive. And even more than that, you're confident. It's a humble confidence because it's not based on what you've done. It's based on what Jesus has done for you. It's what Tim Keller calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. You don't have to think of yourself less. You don't have to think less of yourself, but you get to think of yourself less. That's what happens. And then the last thing is, in terms of other people, when you're thinking of yourself less, here's the other thing that starts to occur is that you're free to become an advocate for other people. You're free now to speak and to intercede on behalf of the people around you. And that sounds really great if you like the people around you, doesn't it? Like if you've got great people around you, you're like, sure, I'd love to pray for them and intercede for them. And that's not just who we're talking about. There's a great example of Stephen in the New Testament And uh, Stephen is on trial. He's about to be executed for his faith in Jesus. And he looks up and says, full of the Holy Spirit, and he sees the glory of God. And what does he see? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then in verse 56, he says, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing, not sitting, standing. And while they were stoning him, Stephen fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. Why is Jesus standing? Jesus is being Stephen's advocate. In the only court that matters to to Stephen's eyes, Jesus is standing for him. And because Jesus is standing for him, Stephen could use his final breath to stand for those who were executing him. See, it's easy to be an advocate for people that deserve advocacy. For those that seem to have a record that stands for themselves. But that's not the kind of advocacy that we're called to. We're called to advocate for people that have no leg to stand on. That have no ability to to say, I can cling to a good moral record. To, To the people that we are enemies to. The people that we disagree with. The people that won't stop talking while you're giving a sermon. I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. (laughs) We're called to advocate for everyone. The people that you disagree with politically, you're called to pray for. The people that that, that have harmed you physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, can you advocate for those people? If you know Christ as an advocate, if you've watched Him stand in your place, though you rebelled against Him, you will be able to do that for other people, though they don't deserve your advocacy. Jesus is the greater way. He eradicates guilt and shame. He gives a greater confidence. And He is the only way to become an unwavering advocate for others. He lives to intercede for you. Do you know what that means? It's his, 
It's his joyful job today to stand in your place. He's glad to do it. So let's pray and thank him for that. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for, um, for this family. Thank you that we get to uh, be together this morning and just to uh, remember your word and the good news of the gospel. Um, thank you that Jesus is our great advocate, that he stands on our behalf. And because of that, God, you, you love to do this for us. You long for us to be covered by your goodness. You don't want us to go into any courtroom alone. And you've made a way for us so that we never have to. God, would you remind us of these things and then as we remember them, would, would we experience uh, the, the guilt of our sin wash away and to become replaced with a humble confidence before you and God, embolden us and make us advocates for other people, even those that don't deserve it, just like us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.